Welcome to Main Street Politics. My name is Daniel Bonham. With us today, a personal hero of mine, Senator Betsy Johnson. Inspirational in terms of our initiation into the podcast world. Well, your podcast setup here is certainly uh, very sophisticated, and you've dived into the deep end. We started out with a little handheld recorder about 13 years ago when I started doing it. It actually migrated from a regular radio show up in Clatsop County that was on a branded station. Right. And then when the professional journalist that produces my show left the station... I went with him, and we turned it into This Week with Betsy Johnson, and we've been doing it for 13 years. We've done it on the back of my car, sitting on the bumper from the Crab Festival up in Astoria, right Right. next to the dumpster. We try to do celebrity guests, celebrity restaurants. We talk about the district. So if we can go out on the road and do it at a coffee shop and talk a little bit to the owner or the serving people, the chef, we try to spice it up with a little bit of process behind the scenes at the legislature, interesting things about the district. We've gone on the road to some distant locations where there was a convocation of legislators with interest germane to the district. It is, at its essence, a look behind the scenes, a way for me to connect with my district about how I spend my time so they don't just think I'm out in the bars, and that's the purpose of the show. You and I first met when I was at the AOC conference in my appointment process, but you were speaking about the wildland fires we had just experienced in the previous season, and I was staring at you knowing that I recognized you, and I couldn't figure it out. I thought, you know, I don't follow politics that closely, that Senator Johnson would mean a lot to me, and you stuck around afterwards, and I came up to you, and I asked you, because you had mentioned being a pilot, and I asked you if you'd ever flown with Evergreen Aviation, and you said, well, no, but I did serve on the board, and that's when it clicked for me. I worked for Dell Smith at Evergreen, and you served on the board. Your face was outside the boardroom, so I walked past you every day. My two worlds had collided, and so fun for me to have that connection to you, knowing that uh, someone else would be able to relate to my stories of what it was like to work and interact with Dell Smith. And I know that very well. Mr. Smith was always extraordinarily kind to me. He ran a global helicopter company. I ran a little tiny helicopter company in Oregon, although we had aircraft in the 11 western states. We used to do some work with Evergreen. Many of our pilots were Evergreen alumni. So I went on to the board there. I was the only female, the only non-Republican, ended up as an officer and served with some very distinguished Oregonians, including former Congressman Smith, who is also a commercial pilot as well as a recreational pilot. I was on the board when uh, David Wu helped get the uh, Blackbird there. It was an interesting time to watch Mr. Smith build the collection, both for his own personal history in aviation, but also all of the people that he knew. My husband and I went to an auction one time, and Mr. Smith came in in the private company jet, and he had Bob Hoover. So for people that know aviation and are hearing me speak, Bob Hoover was one of the deans of the aerobatic. He flew a a commander. We happen to have a commander now. We sure as hell didn't fly it like Bob Hoover did. But this is a guy that could make a commander stand up and bark if he wanted to. And we went over just to pay respects to Mr. Smith and his entourage and ended up sitting there watching him buy for cash, I might add, a (laughs) DC-3, a bunch of other memorabilia. And it was pretty cool for the country mice to go get to sit with the city mice while Mr. Smith bought up the whole auction book. And at the end of that, 
you told me this story. He pulled Financial. a check out yeah. of his checkbook, just like I'd pull a check out of my wallet at Safeway. <laughs> he signs the blank check, hands it to one of his entourage, and says, go settle up. Go settle and up. And it was it, well into the seven figures. My husband and I took our two little baby purchases. Actually, for me, they were quite sentimental. I bought a beautiful silk scarf that Jimmy Doolittle had signed. And Jimmy Doolittle, General Jimmy Doolittle, and my father were great, dear friends. So for me to have bought a, a military silk scarf that General Doolittle had signed was a big deal. I had it framed, and it's in my office at my little tiny helicopter company yeah. as opposed to your great big giant evergreen helicopter company. Well, you mentioned Mr. Smith's kindness to you. And what absolutely impressed me when we first met and you had run out of business cards. You won't remember this, but it meant the world to me. And so you found a scrap of paper, and you tore it off, and you wrote your name on there, and you gave me your office phone number. And then you took the time to draw the logo. You said, you know, there's no gold insignia on this because I don't have a card, but let me draw it for you. And, kid, if you ever get through this election or appointment process, give me a call. And I did. I called you that Sunday, and you meet so many people. You're like, who are you? And why are you calling me? Who gave you this number? And I said, you gave me the number. You said to call me. And we spent probably an hour and a half on a Sunday afternoon that you were so kind to me. And what impressed me the most wasn't just that you took the call, but that your first sentiments were about family. And you talked about growing up in a legislator's home. I did, and that was really my call to public service. I grew up in a family where public service was valued and practiced. My mother served four governors, Republicans and Democrats, on state-level education policy boards, including some tours on the State Board of Higher Education. Back during the Revolution, um, she, on behalf of the board, was making commencement speeches, and it was during that time that they were burning the Board of Education, Higher Education, in, eff in effigy at some of the bigger universities. And when they'd call to tell Mother they'd burned the board in effigy, her question always was, did it have a skirt? Because <laughs> she was the only female. But it was an interesting time in my family. My father was a state representative. He stayed in the House his entire service. My mother was on the State Board of Higher Education. And there were some table-pounding arguments about funding for education when I was growing up. I always knew that I would end up at some point being in the legislature. I'd been down here as a 12-year-old as a page for my father. Yeah. And uh, those were during the McCall days. This was a long time ago. Sam came into the legislature in 1965. He'd actually dated McCall's sister back at, during the time of World War II before anybody married anybody. Yeah. And Governor McCall's uh, grave is in Redmond, where I grew up, and we always decorate his grave at Christmas time. It was interesting for me, and I, I think once you're down here, you sort of get the legislature under your skin, and having both of my parents serving state government, I knew I would end up here. So out of curiosity, does your sister have this bug as well? My sister has a flying bug, but she does not have the public service okay, bug. Okay, fair enough. No, uh, my sister uh, flew for a bank for a long time, ran an aerobatic company, and did two tours on the United States aerobatic team flying both here and abroad. Yeah. Now, I believe you mentioned this at that first AOC conference when you were talking about firefighting. Were you the first woman to fly 
firefighting helicopter missions? I think I was. I can't absolutely swear to that, but I remember when, you know this, and this is the language of firefighting aviation, the aircraft has to be carded, which means it has to be inspected by the feds in certain ways, and the pilot has to be carded, meaning you had to take a check ride and show proficiency. When I got ready to get carded, uh, the Czech pilot here in Oregon wouldn't fly with me because I was a girl. Yeah. And so they had to bring a Czech pilot up from California. And I flew well enough to get carded. If Was I the absolute first? I can't swear to that. Well, I, we're going to say I think it. I was. We're going to say it. Betsy Johnson, first female to ever fly. Carded. Carded helicopter missions. Buck, fighting bucket fires. stuff. So you've been in the building for quite a while. And, and while I've... First, before we go there, and the nice thing is I get to say stupid things, then Dylan just goes back and edits them out. That's the lovely thing about having a producer. If I accidentally <laughs> swear, or if I say, uh, too much, or if I fumble an answer, I have my wonderful producer, just as you have Dylan, go back, and I always joke when I'm done, I said, Desmo, did you make me sound tall, thin, and blonde? And if the answer's yes, it's a good show. So you mentioned, though, being the only non-Republican on Dell's board. But that said, like when I look at you and I think of who you are and how you represent the people of Oregon and not just the folks in your district, because you do a wonderful job, too, of constituent work. That's one thing that I've heard from a bunch of people back in your district is how wonderful you are at responding to their needs. But we out in Central Oregon like to think of you as one of us as well. Your roots in Redmond, your business acumen. And I do like that even though you went to law school, you know, on your Web page, it, it describes you as a businesswoman. And I think that voice is so valuable in this building, and it's so lacking. Well, I'm very proud of being a native Oregonian, and particularly Central Oregon. I grew up in Redmond when Redmond really was a rural Central Oregon. For fancy orthodonture or any of that, we had to come to Portland. Now there are doctors that restrict their practice to the you know reconstruction of the bones of the back of the hand. I'm obviously making that up. But when I was growing up, Redmond had a population of about 2,700. It now has 27,000. Yeah. But in this ample breast, there will always beat a Redmond heart. When I go over home, I still call it home, that smell of sagebrush, the celadon colors, the way the mountains look in the snow, that to me is the epitome of Oregon. And I'm afraid I'm always going to be a Central Oregon girl, although... I love representing the coast. I love my district. I think the best part of my service in the legislature is not being down here trapped in this building making laws that are questionable whether we need all the laws we're going to pass. The best part for me is being out in the district and having the pleasure of really knowing at a very intimate level the people and the places that I represent. And that means you got to be there. you right. got to show up for the Crab mm. Festival. you got to show up for the auction for Casa. you got to show up for all this stuff. And that's the part that I like the absolute best. Give me a sense of how many miles you put on your rig a year. Well, with my new job this year, it has changed dramatically. But in an average year, I'd probably do 80,000 miles. It's an hour and a half from Scappoos to Tillamook. It's an hour and a half from Tillamook to Astoria. It's an hour and a half from Astoria to Scappoos. Now, that's not summer coastal uh, traffic. Right. That drive on the coast has gotten a little more challenging. I, there were days I went to Astoria twice. I drive a lot. There's one person previously that I hadn't complained in front of, and that was Cliff Bentz. 
Oh, uh, God, Cliff, uh, he has to go to a different time zone. This is Senator Cliff Benz, <laughs> a colleague and a friend, and he lives in Ontario, and he lives in a different time zone than the rest of us. Yeah, I joke with him. I call him at 7 in the morning to find out what's happening in the future. Oh, yeah. What's, the, what's this day going to look like, Cliff? I mean, you already know. Tell us what's happening. Yeah. Well, he's a good guy. And the, I think sometimes Oregonians writ large forget the sacrifice for a, a Cliff Benz or Representative Finley, where they, in order to stay connected to their district, it's a six-hour drive. Right. That's an enormous pressure on them. And I think folks sometimes don't realize that we converge here from all of the places we're privileged, privileged to represent but it's a schlep for some of our colleagues. Yeah, and I, I don't. I live far enough away. I can't go back and forth in a day. But I get home almost every weekend. Finley only gets home. Representative Finley, I think he was home for the third time, and he said that's probably going to be it until we sign he die. So he's got another month at least of being down here without seeing wife and home, and it, it does it's, present it's a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Years in this legislature. What, if anything, can you look to and say, wow, this really has changed since I've been here? Oh, a lot's changed. I was elected in 2000. My first session was in 2001. And that was during the Kitsaber administration. And so I have seen a number of governors come and go. But I think I can say without fear of contradiction that this session has had some unique characteristics. It has been very fast. It has been very partisan. It has taken on huge issues that I think would profit from additional time and consideration. When we've got bills that have upwards of 90 amendments, nine zero amendments, mm -hmm. that suggests to me that they perhaps are not ready for prime time. I think the desire for my party with supermajorities in both of the chambers I think the temptation to want to run the table has been very high. Mm -hmm. And I often am not quite in sync with my caucus because, as we just talked about, I represent a rural place. I'm one of the only people, there's a handful of them in this building that have signed both the front and the back of a check. I've been responsible for a payroll and health plan and benefits for 50 people. So I tend to bring a slightly different perspective than some of my urban colleagues who can walk across their district and have not had the same life experience. Right. You, from your freshman year, were put on Ways and Means, which is relatively unique. How far into your time in office did you feel like you had a grasp on that process and that you felt effective in that ways and means process. Well, you told me you weren't going to ask any trick questions, and you've just asked one. <laughs> I, I am now one of two co-chairs of ways and means on the Senate side, and then, of course, you have Representative Rayfield on your side, so we are the tri-chairs. From the first moment that I sat in a chair in Ways and Means, I thought maybe one day I'll be co-chair. Well, be careful what you wish for. I am now one of the three people writing the budget for the state of Oregon. I learn something different every day. I think for me in Ways and Means, the thing that's changed the most is I've chaired lots of Ways and Means subs. And as I'm sure your listeners know, Ways and Means is this large, powerful budget writing committee. It is bicameral. It is bipartisan, mm -hmm. meaning it's Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate. And it is served by six standing subcommittees as well as what's called the Capital Construction Sub, which is also a subcommittee of Ways and Means. 
in each of those portfolios, be it education, natural resources, public safety, general government, there are portfolios of budgets. And in the committees that I've been privileged to chair or serve on, I know those budgets very, very well. This is the first time that I have seen the totality of the budgets spread out across all of the issue areas. Mm -hmm. And it's been sort of interesting because Senator Steiner Hayward on the Senate side had chaired the Human Services Subcommittee. She's a doctor by training, and so she knows the human services portfolio very well. I, as a business person and a chair of some of the other subs that are not in the human services arena, know those budgets and those issues very well. So we have been extraordinarily complementary to each other in being able to fill in the missing pieces. I don't know all of the social service budgets the same degree of intimacy and urgency and poignancy that she does. Conversely, she doesn't know the natural resource sub portfolios, firefighting. Um, some of the things that you and I might have in common. Mm -hmm. But it's been a pleasure to serve with her, and I'm delighted to report to your listeners, as I have reported to my own listeners, that Steiner Hayward, Rayfield, and Johnson have gotten along splendidly from the first time we were all thrust together prior to the start of this session. I want to backtrack a little bit. Early on in your career, getting into this, and having a father and a mom that was very politically active, as as you alluded to, Yet I'm curious, who were your political heroes? Did you have anybody beyond family member that you looked to and said, wow, if I could emulate anybody someday when I do this? Probably Mark Hatfield, who I knew very well personally, a man of enormous integrity and courage and principle convictions. I remain good friends with Antoinette, his wife. I speak to her on the phone every other week or more. I go down and have lunch with her occasionally, not during the session. He was uh, somewhat of a fixture in our house, and we all knew each other. I grew up knowing him. I was recruited to run for Congress one time, and he was the person that I went to for advice. I thought that he was unflappable, and uh, I appreciated that. I also appreciated his connectivity to Oregon, his desire to do good by the state. And I'm thinking of my English teacher mother up in heaven saying, how could I possibly have used that term of art? But one looks around at the things that Senator Hatfield touched that really created the Oregon that we know it. Um, we may well cure cancer in this state. And I believe that Senator Mark Hatfield laid the foundation for that to occur by turning OHSU into a powerhouse research facility. So while one thinks of him in the context of being the chair of appropriations and serving back there in Washington, his connectivity to Oregon was palpable and tangible. As we've had this conversation about the carbon issue and how we are going to address it, with you just mentioning what Hatfield might have laid the groundwork to. I have argued in that carbon conversation that one of the things that we should do in the state of Oregon is attract people to our regulatory environment that are interested in manufacturing. You have started to lay the groundwork with that omic facility to potentially really drive manufacturing in Oregon. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, it's that? not just manufacturing. It's innovation, innovation. as well. Yep. I believe very much in the market, and I think as we begin to change our behaviors that entrepreneurs, scientists, engineers, big thinkers will come up with the next generation of fuel that relies on things we haven't even thought about now. Yeah. 
I think that it is inappropriate for government to press these decisions down. I would much rather have the marketplace begin to change and a Norm Winningstad, um, a big thinker, an engineer, come up and say, well, you know, we could make fuel out of that. We're courting a company in my district right now to make a diesel biofuel out of non-petroleum products. Yeah. And I think that as we move towards this less carbon-reliant future, that those opportunities will percolate up. If, and only if, we don't, in the process of talking about a, the carbon reduction, that we kill Oregon's business platform. We are a manufacturing state. And I think for 90 people in this building to try to dictate from the state on down, mm -hmm. what this transition to a cleaner environment ought to look like is wrong-headed. And this bill, to me, is particularly problematic given its complexity and the fact that it has not taken into consideration the transition from petroleum-using vehicles to electric vehicles. It's going to gobble up our bonding capacity. And moreover, it is going to press a financial burden onto people that I represent and you represent right. that are rural souls that are already deeply financially burdened as some of our traditional industries have collapsed. Forestry immediately comes to mind. We were talking on the House floor today in general, talking about how to solve problems. And one of the challenges I've seen in this session for me personally as a member of the super minority is not having a voice in some of those conversations and wanting to start from scratch in terms of if we need $2 billion for schools, instead of telling us what your solution is that you came up with on your own, invite us to the table and help us be a part of that. And there's a lot of pointing backwards, right, to Measure 5 and the things that Measure 5 did. It also happens that we pass Measure 5 about the same time we quit engaging in forestry practices in this state. I mean, our timber industry was decimated about the same time. And you want to talk about a massive funding source for rural infrastructure, for rural schools, for all sorts of investment outside of the Willamette Valley. And most of it was tied to the timber industry. Well, you've also segued into another really important aspect, and I see these as bookends. That is, we have passed in this building this massive tax increase. But I believe that it is integrally, inextricably linked to the clarion call to do something about our public employee retirement system. Lest, in some cases, 30, 35 percent of the new money goes into paying for legacy uh, public employee retirement costs. And that's not to say that I don't value our public employees. I recognize that the public employees of today did not dig the hole that we are in. But it is unconscionable for us not to do something to ameliorate this problem. And there's always a reason why not to do it. I think that there is a call for political courage, even though it will be at a sacrifice for some people in this building, to say, on my watch, I did something about PERS. Yeah. And in the floor speech that I made when the tax bill came across, it was that we cannot responsibly push these additional costs onto business and, by extension, onto Oregonians without doing something to mitigate the pernicious effect of this legacy problem of our unfunded actuarial liability. Right. And, and again, that's one I wish we could force everyone back home to take a class to understand unfunded actuarial liability. It's a hard reference to give people back home because not a lot of people understand, one, state budgets, 
and what an unfunded actuary even represents. And so you know, the closest analogy I've come up with, it'd be like buying a variable valued home on a variable rate that at any given moment, depending on what the market does, you could have no liability. You could have paid your house off or you could be $100,000 of payments in only to come to find out that you're $100,000 more in debt. That's a very good analogy because the UAL, the unfunded actuarial liability, is a moving target. It isn't like I owe $100,000 on my house and I know if I make principal and interest payments that that declines over time. This has all sorts of variabilities, many of which are beyond our ability to control. There is a separate PERS board that our fiduciaries, meaning they have fiscal responsibilities to the integrity of the system, they will be making decisions external to us and their decisions profoundly affect as you know, the number in the uh, unfunded actuarial liability. Bottom line for your listeners, so we get out of the weeds a little bit, is that I see these two things as partner pieces of a bigger problem. And then the second thing is, assuming both the tax piece passes and the PERS piece passes, then there will be a call to make sure that our expectations of this level of investment are realized. There must be transparency. There must be accountability. And we do do not move the dial on our graduation rate or our children going on to higher education or people finding terminal certificates or degrees and going into the workplace. We will have failed. And those metrics must be kept. And we must hold people that are responsible for delivering on the promise of this infusion of money into the K-12 system and early ed. We must hold them accountable for the deliverables. So when we first talked, and I mentioned having an interest in ways and means, we went back and forth, and I kind of asked you how to approach that and how to get on the right committee. And then once I was appointed to the right committee, I came back to you. And this was the one time you didn't say my name, but I knew you were talking about me on your podcast as you talked about the young representative who came to you and said, how do I approach this? How do I eat this big elephant? You gave me some advice on how to approach it. And my staff was wise enough to to bring John Borden in, and we had a one-on-one visit. And I don't, I've never told you this, so I'll share this with you. He came in here, and you know John and his personality very well. He is an extremely bright man. He knows the ways and means process back and forth. He's extremely professional and respectful. And so I told him as a freshman legislator from the middle of nowhere, member of the super minority, that I had every intention of serving as my mentor in this process would, Senator Johnson, and I was going to be a tiger with these agency heads. And he said, all due respect, young man, you know, all due, you know, oh, representative, uh, how do I say this to you? You know, I I don't mean to burst your, you know, there's one Senator Johnson, maybe just take your time, maybe ease into this. (laughs) Well, I can easily see him saying that. That fine line between probative questioner and obnoxious, um, (laughs) You know, uh, there's a there's a word that starts with a B, and you don't say it on the radio. Um, that that's a very fine line, and I periodically stray over it. But I believe that one of my responsibilities is to to not allow the pablum of superficial answers to pass as the status quo. I now have been around long enough to be able to know where the bones are buried in some of these agencies. And I'm not shy about asking for it. I'm not shy about asking for follow-up. One has to be careful, though, as one becomes 
uh, an inquisitor, because I'm sure that's how some of the agencies feel, that one needs to be respectful of the fact that these are professionals doing a professional job. Now, I may not agree with them. I may not agree with their outcomes. But I don't think that there's a single person in state government who gets up in the morning and says, gee, I think I'm going to torture some kids. Gee, I think I'm going to befoul the environment. Gee, I think I'm going to screw this up. Now, there are notable examples of where maybe my example doesn't completely hold. I remember Mill Creek rising with floodwaters, and nobody was smart enough to go out and move the motor pool, and we drowned about 100 cars. So every once in a while, there's some anomalous little blip on the radar screen. But by and large, it has been my experience that people who feel a calling to public service get up every single morning and say, I'm going to do my damnedest to make Oregon a better place. We may all disagree on what the path looks like. You and I may disagree. But I cannot think of a person who is willing to make the kind of sacrifice attendant to being in public service who doesn't, honest to God, think that they're trying to improve the condition of Oregon and its citizens. Well, and to that end, throw some praise at LFO, because I know you hold those people in high regard and that they do wonderful service for us. Tell people back home what the Legislative Fiscal Office does and and how important they are to our process. There is, in the legislative process, there are a number of nonpartisan offices. It is the Legislative Revenue Office, which is responsible for doing analysis and serving the committees that raise the money. There is the Legislative Fiscal Office with their analysts who help spend the money. There are the lawyers, Legislative Council, and they write the bill language, which is arcane, difficult, language to write. I'm a lawyer by training, and I could never write bill language or do all the research that you have to do to produce bills that will become law of the state of Oregon in some cases. And then we've added one last one, the Legislative Policy and Research Office, LPRO. These offices are staffed by people, not LPRO so much because they haven't been around, but the Legislative Fiscal Office and the Legislative Revenue Office. These are PhD-level people who have done this work for a long time. LFO, I am very fond of all of the people down there. I have felt the burden and the privilege of serving on Ways and Means. When I first was appointed to Ways and Means by Speaker Simmons, Mark Simmons, Mm -hmm. I was in then the minority, and Mark Simmons took a risk on me and now has spawned a little baby co-chair. I felt that I was part of a special fraternity of people in that legislative fiscal gravitational pull. And it has been a singular honor and privilege. I remember when I was appointed to Ways and Means, I called my mother and I said, God, I got on Ways and Means, I got on Ways and Means. And mother said, your father had to serve three terms before he got on Ways and Means. So I knew that uh, Mark Simmons had given me a unique opportunity as a freshman, and I have relished every minute of it. Well, I, for one, as an Oregonian, am grateful that you're there and that you're doing the work that you're doing. I hope the people back home appreciate the time and energy you put into this. I have one question I'd love to ask everyone that I interview. What is one thing the listeners would be surprised to know about you? That I was Benji the dog's personal pilot during the filming of Benji the Hunted, a movie that anybody who is a parent will have watched. It is an entire movie about critters, and I wasn't Benji's pilot the whole time. But I flew Benji the dog. Well, that is really cool. You've stumped me. That I normally try and come up with my own surprising thing that tops what you tell me, but I think you win. 
<laughs> well, uh, it was fun, and we were stationed in Cascade Lock. There, it was all critters, and one of the m- most intriguing afternoons of flying, they had two eagles that were not American eagles, but they had been painted to look like American eagles, and these eagles hadn't been out of their cage for a long time, and suddenly here they were in the Columbia River Gorge magnificent scenery, not that that matters to a bird. What they're mostly interested in is the thermals and the ability to just fly on the air inside the gorge. And so when it came time for the painted up eagles to come home and get in their little eagle cage, they said, not so much. (laughs) And we spent most of the afternoon chasing them with a helicopter, trying to get them to land so that the eagle handlers could get out and bag them and take them back. That's one thing that I don't think a lot of people know is how many movies have been made here in Oregon. And I'll just conclude by saying for lots of places in beautiful central Oregon and certainly on the coast, the fact that we welcome these movie, video, and theatrical productions into our state makes cash registers ring like church bells. Right. And we ought to be deeply appreciative. For your listeners, one of the first series that we did ages ago was a thing called From Oregon with Love about a Japanese child that came to live here in Oregon. Right. And we did almost all the aerials on that. I would like to believe that that helped lay some of the groundwork for the wonderful relationship that we enjoy with the nation of Japan right now. Yeah. Well, I know your time is super valuable, especially with all your responsibilities and commitments. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us well, today. Well, I'm going to reciprocate by asking you to come and be on This Week with Betsy Johnson. You'll be able to Tell your message and your story to the coast, and we can share our common uh, association and affection for Del Smith. Del put Oregon on the map in the aviation world, and I, both of us, I know, share the common pride of our association with him. And there's plenty of stories to tell. So. Oh, there are plenty of stories to tell, without question. Well, thank so you. So thank you. Everyone, that was Senator Johnson joining us on Main Street Politics. And thank you, the listeners, for coming back by again. Main Street Politics. Remember, if you need to get a hold of us here in the office, 503-986-1459, or our district office is 541-719-8745.